0: The asylum system was a system of control, coercion, a lot of them were tied up, there were forms of torture. It was a pretty depressing place. Once you were in, it was very difficult to get out.
1: This is Not What You Think, I'm Sasha Rosen. In 1978, Italy passed a law and shut down its asylums, which over the following years it pretty much did. There's still mental health care in Italy, it just happens without being run out of big hospitals. That law was called the Basaglia law, named after the man at the centre of the change, Franco Basaglia. Professor John Foote was probably best known for writing a history of Italian football before he wrote The Man Who Closed the Asylums, Franco Basaglia and the Revolution in Mental Health Care. We'll hear from John in just a sec. But because, for me, this is a family story, in the sense that my family all work in mental health, so I know the story of Franco Basaglia. I hear it all the time. I mean, when I first went to Venice with my family, my parents took me to meet Franco Basaglia a former Italian senator who had helped close down the Italian asylum system. This is what we did there.
2: So, in the interest of disclosure, here's my mum. I'm Vivian Miller. I'm Zasha Rosen's mother. And I've worked in psychiatry, mental health places for over 40 years. You've been... On our show before, haven't you? Yes,
1: I have. In our episode on transient global amnesia, along with my dad. But that's not why I've got you in here. So here I have a book of photos.
2: Do you remember meeting this person here? Yes, certainly. That's Franca Basalia. She's a very lively-looking 70-something-year-old in this photo with tight, cropped grey hair. Very lively features staring at me from her balcony with some palazzi in the distance behind her. Where are we in that photo? In Franca's apartment in Venice, which overlooks the Grand Canal. Her hospitality was just very gracious and lovely and she was a very interesting woman. Had you met her before? Yes, we'd met her I think maybe only once before. I can't remember how many times before. It may have even been the last time we met her. We did speak to her again after that, but I'm not sure that we met her again. She was not well the next time we came.
1: It was definitely the first time I met her. You just took me to meet this important person who lived in Venice.
2: She was lovely. What did she mean to you? I think that I've got to appreciate her importance more and more over the years. At the time, she was the wife of someone that we'd heard of, Franco Basalia. Franco, Franca. that's really confusing. Yeah, Franco is the male, Franca, the female.
1: They're not brothers and sisters like in Game of Thrones. They're like just two people with the same name almost who happened to get married.
2: Yeah, that's it. (laughs) She was Franca Ongaro, often called Franca Ongaro Basalia. To me, she was a lovely woman and I knew she'd had some role in the reforms in Italy, but I thought really mainly as the wife of Franco. But I subsequently have been learning that she actually was quite an integral part of all of that. She was important in her own right, not just as the wife of Franco. She helped close the asylums too. And why was Franco important? Because he could create a movement and an excitement about closing the asylums. Is that normal in mental health? Mm,
1: Possibly not. Why was Italy so interesting for you for mental health when you found out about the sort of things that happened after the Basalia law?
2: The fact that they really had no beds as we did. People had to become guests in the what were the psychiatric hospitals. It's such a different concept from being a patient and being done to. You have to have some sort of human right and respect. I've seen and been with so many people in that sort of institution and it's no life for anyone. As a student, during my occupational therapy course, we were taken around Claremont Hospital, a big psychiatric hospital in Perth, and that was the real eye-opener for me. That's when I saw beds in huge wards with only centimetres in between the beds. We were shown how people stored things under their mattresses because there was nowhere private to store anything. They had no bedside tables, no nothing. They had beds down the sides, beds down the middle, you walked into some of the wards where people were during the day and they stunk of urine. It was, it was awful.
1: So that was my mum.
2: John Foote has written
1: a book about closing down asylums in Italy. John, thanks for coming in. You're welcome. It's a great pleasure. That's one of the stories my family tells itself about the Basalias opening up the asylum. What first grabbed you about this story?
0: The whole of this project that has taken me five or six years came from a documentary film I saw in Trieste in 2008, which was at the anniversary of the Basalia Law, 1978, and it was shown in the late night in a cinema with hardly anybody there. And it's a film called San Clemente that you can see on YouTube, directed by a French director called Raymond Depardon, and it's shot in Venice's asylum in 1978-79, so time of change. But it also captures what the asylum was like, the old asylum. So it's a moment of transition. And it's a very shocking film, a very disturbing film. And I've never really got it out of my mind, that film. And it made me want to do this work. The vision of these patients abandoned their faces, their bodies, what the institution had done to people. It wasn't just that they had mental illness, which of course many of them did. But the institution had ravaged them into something that was almost non-human. And you could see it in the film. There's a scene where a guy is just walking up and down. And it's a very disturbing scene. And the camera stays on him, and he's just walking up and down all day, very fast. And that's the scene that stayed with me. This institution, what was the point of it? Why was it there? And it's hideous and horrific, but it's changing. You can see people are getting out. There's discussions and meetings. So this moment of change. That film made me want to do this work.
1: Now, do you thought much about mental health before then?
0: Not really, no. Although I found out lots of things later on. I found out my mum had been in an asylum, which I didn't even know. So there were lots of things that I discovered along the way.
1: Were you able to ask your mum about that?
0: She won't really talk about it very much, but I think this work kind of brought it back into her mind. She was in an asylum in London very briefly, but it was interesting for me. And one day I'll go and look at the records, but I think it's probably too close now to think about that. But interesting to find out that.
1: It's a surprise. In Italy, there's kind of a myth around the two Bressalier, especially Franco Bressalier.
0: He's a household name. Franco Bazzaglia is a household name in Italy. Everybody knows who he is. They don't know much about him, but they know who he is. I think his story is so powerful. His story of freeing the patients, on the one hand, causes fear about these people out on the streets. On the other hand, is a story of liberation. So it divides people. And people know that he was a world pioneer. Italy was ahead of everyone else on this story.
1: If I was to ask, say, uh, an Italian psychiatrist what Basalia did, what would they say to me?
0: I would say they would say one of two different things. They say this was a great man who freed the patients and reformed the system. Or they would say it was a total disaster. It really divides people. And some people would like to go back to the past and reopen the asylums.
1: He's an interesting bloke in the sense that a lot of the change he implemented happened because of experiences in the Second World War in Italy.
0: Franco Basaglia was a teenager in the Second World War. Italy was under not just fascism, but also under Nazi occupation. He was in Venice at that time at school, and he got involved in anti-fascist activities, newspapers, secret propaganda, and so on. And he was picked up by the fascists, interrogated, beaten up, and put in prison with no sentence in a pretty horrible prison. He could easily have been deported or shot. The story that I've been told is that his father, who was quite a powerful man, protected him from the worst aspects of that. But nonetheless, it was a very uncertain future in a prison full of political prisoners and also with Jews in it who were being deported to camps like Auschwitz. It was a very scary situation for a 19-year-old. And I think that experience, that anti-fascism, was integral to his activities in the 1960s and 1970s.
1: The memory of being a prisoner is something that he invokes directly when he talks about his first job running an asylum. He was put in charge of an asylum. What was the connection?
0: When Franco bazzaglia was appointed director of an asylum in 1961, he walked into the institution and the smell of it immediately reminded him of the prison he'd been in a number of years before and also the way the institution worked. So he immediately said, this isn't a hospital. This is meant to be a hospital where people are treated, but it feels a lot like a prison. It smells a lot like a prison. That reaction, that kind of visceral reaction to the institution, was one of the factors behind him wanting to not just reform it, close it down.
1: After the Second World War, Franco trains as a psychiatrist. Yeah. And then he spends some frustrating years at university, and then he eventually ends up at this place called Gorizia, which is just on the border of Yugoslavia, so off on the eastern edge of Italy. Gorizia is in the middle of nowhere. It's an old school asylum. It's pretty awful. But also, a lot of listeners will be thinking, well, you know, people didn't have to worry about jobs, they didn't have to worry about food, you know, they were looked after. I mean, it's not perfect, you're not rich, but what's wrong with an asylum?
0: What's wrong with asylum? It's a very good question. I've never seen a functioning one. I've only seen film or or empty ones, but I've read a lot about them. I think the asylum system in Italy, but not just in Italy, as your mum was saying, was a system of control, coercion. By that time there was very little treatment of people. So people were massed inside of pretty hideous buildings. A lot of them were tied up. They had no control of their treatment. Electro shock treatment was common. There were forms of torture. It was a pretty pretty depressing place. And seemed pointless as well. Once you were in, it was very difficult to get out, and all kinds of people ended up there, like there was an alcoholics ward in Gorizia, for example. So there were about six hundred patients in the Gorizia Asylum. That's a pretty normal number. And it was very old school psychiatry that was being practiced there.
1: Psychiatry that stretches back to the sort of like horrific asylums that you tend to see in low-budget horror films.
0: Yes, I don't think it was that different to some of those horror films. That's what Basalia saw when he went in. There was very little psychiatry actually inside these hospitals. In Gorizia, about 400 nurses, none of whom were trained. Usually appointed because they were strong as opposed to good at being nurses.
1: Physically strong for restraining people. Yeah,
0: that was the criteria for having that job. And a few psychiatrists who were never really there. So it was basically a place where, as Buzalia would say, a place of exclusion, where people who were deviant or often the poor were locked away, sometimes for decades.
1: What did he change?
0: He didn't know what to do. He knew he didn't like the institution. He didn't really know how to change it. So he did it bit by bit. He opened up the wards... He got the patients to knock down their own walls. This is a very Bazalian thing to do.
1: Literally with sledgehammers knocking down a wall?
0: Yeah, they did. They kind of weakened the wall, I think, with sort of sledgehammers, and they all push it over. And there's a great film of it. So he filmed the patients knocking down their own walls. Some people have called Bazalia a kind of surrealist in some of the things he did, you know? He was very interested in almost the spectacle of liberation And then later on, he forms something called a therapeutic community, where the patients have a say in their own treatment. He gets to know a lot of the patients very, very well. They start to discuss their daily lives. He starts to get them jobs and pay them for those jobs. So he really transforms the institution. He builds up a relationship with them as people, which is a crucial part of the process. He wants to close it. He writes about closing the system. But there's no possibility of that in the 1960s. There's no reform that allows him to even get the patients out. To get an individual patient out is a massive battle with the legal system, the medical system. What he creates is a perfect, almost democratic hospital. And When people come and see it, they write about it. So I've seen a miracle. It's almost a religious experience because none of the doctors wore white coats. I can't tell who the doctors are and the patients
1: what was the experience like for one of the patients while all of this was happening
0: a lot of the patients became very involved in the movement and were sort of leaders of the movement one of the most interesting patients for me was a woman called Carla Nardini she'd been in Auschwitz and other camps She'd been deported from Gorizia. She was from Gorizia, And she became the secretary of the general meeting, a general meeting that was held of the patients every day during the week. And she took the notes, and she became a very close friend of Basalia. And she had obviously had the tattoo on her arm. And there was a TV documentary watched by 11 million people in 1969 where patients actually appeared and spoke on TV in Italy, which was extraordinary. In the TV documentary, she starts to cry and the camera kind of closes in on her tears. And she's very erudite and powerful in what she says. And so some of the patients became almost political activists inside the asylum in that period and became personalities in their own right. And interestingly, when the asylum closed, they found it much more difficult, often on the outside world, because they'd lost the focus of a place that was changing. In some cases, there were suicides or depression that set in because they'd been protagonists of a collective movement, which was part of the point was to get them out. But then once they were out, they found it much more difficult because their focus of that movement was difficult to keep going in the outside world. I'm really talking about a kind of patient elite here. And some people might accuse Bazalia of using the patients as pawns in his struggle. I don't believe that's true at all, but that has been an accusation leveled at him.
1: So Franco is busy pulling apart the way this hospital normally functions, almost levelling it out. What's Franca doing at this point?
0: In Gorizia, Franca Ongaro is right by Franco's side. They work together, not just in the hospital. This is a movement that's 24 hours a day. When they get home, the discussions continue. They're writing books. They're making films. It's a sort of total commitment. And she's right there. When they write books and the books become bestsellers,
1: Books on deinstitutionalization of mental health hospitals become bestsellers.
0: Yes, it's very bizarre to think that's true. One of their books really hits the zeitgeist in 68. It's called The Negated Institution. She's the one who writes it, or some of it, and he he kind of dictates and they discuss. So they write together, they work together, they're militants together. In many ways, people talk of her as, as kind of his backbone. He often wanted to give up and leave. He was fed up at various times, and she kept him going. So she was really important, and she's been written out of history. She's sometimes called his secretary. She's often relegated to a footnote. And I think that's just wrong, and I try to change that in my book.
1: And it's kind of ironic, too, because he dies in 1980 of a brain tumour, very young, in his 50s. He has done all these big deinstitutionalisation things. She becomes a senator, though.
0: Yeah, she's elected twice as a senator and uses her position to implement the law because it's one thing to pass a law. Italy maybe is worse than many other countries in this. But another thing is to implement it. You need money and resources to close down the psychiatric hospital. You can't just push people out onto the streets and hope they'll be okay. So you need halfway houses and jobs and cooperatives and uh, all kinds of things, cultural activities. It's actually more expensive in the short term, although not in the long term than the hospital. So she was very important in pushing that through. In
1: 1978, they passed this law. What was the deal with the law?
0: The crucial thing about the, what's called the Basalia Law, by most people, that's not its real name, named after Franco, 1978. It's also called Law 180, which is its real name. The crucial thing is it closed down the asylum system and said you couldn't build any more psychiatric hospitals. So it kind of signals the end of that system. And I think it's the first law in the world to do that. And not for reasons of cost, but for reasons of health and democracy and for moral reasons and political reasons, which is crucial. Reagan and Thatcher closed down the asylums, yeah? But that was for reasons of kind of neoliberalism. This is a different thing. Of course, it needed to be implemented. By
1: 1978, this was something that had almost already happened in Trieste.
0: Bazzali went to Trieste in 1971 and was there till 1978. By then, the movement is very strong. You've had 68, you had the student movement. So, a lot of people on board think that psychiatry needs to change, think that the assignments need to be closed. So, you've got a mass movement, really, behind change. And in Trieste, Basadio, he acts very quickly. He doesn't mess about with the therapeutic community. He just gets the patients out, he forms cooperatives, he gets them jobs, he gets them houses, but he's also an explosion of creativity, artists, theatre directors musicians all kind of turn up and anything goes. Everything is really moving very fast by the 70s. Bazalia holds a press conference in 1977, a very famous press conference, and says, the asylum is closed. It's not true, but it's a great press conference. He's always pushing, and everyone in the asylum is a bit surprised because he hasn't told anyone that it's closed, and it doesn't seem to be totally closed. But anyway, just to kind of push everything further on, that's always his tactic.
1: There's a story around this point about a blue horse
0: it's a great story, but it's a story that's often told about Basalia and the movement. So in 1973, they get a load of artists in to the hospital and they make a blue horse out of paper mache including letters from the patients about their dreams, and they make this into the horse. It's a big horse, very beautiful. And it's also symbolic because there was a horse called Marco, which used to pull the washing all around the hospital in Trieste, Trieste on a big hill. And Marco was the only thing that went out of the hospital regularly the patients didn't. And they take the horse out into the city, they follow it, they're playing instruments. The horse becomes a symbol. There are seven horses, I think, now.
1: It's also kind of a symbol of Basalia the symbol rather than Basalia the man who did things.
0: Yes, I think there's a bit of a debate over the importance of the horse. Some of the more hardcore, practical people in the movement think, well, yeah, the horse didn't actually change anything, right? You know, we did all the hardcore, boring stuff of finding a patient, a therapist, getting them a job, getting them a house. That's really what's important. And other people, the more creative wings. So there is a separation in the movement. And I think to concentrate only on those aspects, you forget the kind of really dull but crucial work which people do on a daily basis of dealing with people. Because it's not as if Bazzalli abolished mental illness. He got rid of a system which wasn't really doing much for people with mental illness. But mental illness is still around. And someone has to deal with that. But that's much more boring than some of the more fun aspects of the 70s, which are important, but not maybe crucial.
1: What do you think is more important at that point, the boring bits or the showmanship?
0: I like it all. But I think Bazalia was always a very hardcore, practical person. He never did stuff for its own sake. He did that boring stuff and he did the creative stuff. And I think that when the two things worked together, that was what made it so extraordinary, really. It's one of the most amazing kind of global influences certainly of any psychiatrist in history. I couldn't believe it. I went to the Netherlands and everyone was going on about Basalia. And here in Australia I found lots of people who were interested who'd been to Trieste. It wasn't just him, you know, I think that's the danger that I've tried to overcome in the book is this was a movement of many psychiatrists. It was a global movement.
1: John, thanks for coming in today.
0: You're welcome, it's been a pleasure.
1: If you'd like to know more about the Basalia's and the law that carries their name, you might want to check out John's book. The Man Who Closed the Asylums, and The Revolution in Mental Health Care. We'll put a link up on our show page, and in the podcast notes. If you like this episode, and you want to hear more, we've got lots more. Go to fbiradio.com slash notwhatyouthink to hear all this season's episodes and three seasons' worth of archived episodes. You can also subscribe to our podcast there. Is there something you think we should make a show about? There's a link on that page for you to tell us all about it. If you like us, you'll probably like a bunch of other great FBI podcasts. Choose some at fbiradio.com podcasts. Now, What You Think is produced by Olivia Peary griffiths and Lachlan Wiley. Linda DeLacy is our production consultant. Show art by Annie Hamilton. Executive producer is Samira. It was created by Laura Briley, Claire Holland, and me, I'm Sasha Rosen. Keep listening for our next episode.